Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew. Let's listen together for what the Spirit has to say to the church. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and our understanding of God's holy word. Friends, what do you get the person who has everything? What is the perfect gift? What is a fitting present? I have heard it said that there is a difference between a gift and a present, not technically according to Webster's Dictionary, but subconsciously in our use of the words. A present, if this is accurate, is something you want the other person to have. It is about you and your presentation of something that you think is special. A gift, on the other hand, is something the other person wants to have. Perhaps your great aunt handed down something to you that actually feels like a burden to possess and to preserve. Maybe someone who doesn't share your sense of style gave you something to wear or something to decorate your home with. Do you know how that feels? You may have done it too. Perhaps in return you gave a book to someone which you wanted them to read, but which you suspect they never did. Perhaps you baked cookies for someone who had gone gluten-free. Or maybe you gave a young person something you thought was the latest fad, the latest trend, but the technology, or that one, had already moved on. Sometimes giving a gift is more about the giver and the need to give rather than the receiver and what it is that they long to receive. In a perfect world, of course, it could be both. The giver and the receiver could both be, as the Reverend Jake Joseph preached, a real, a real home run of a sermon to kick off our giving season on the 15th. Joyful, joyful. I've heard from so many of you about how much you appreciated that message. What a thing to have a joyful giver and a joyful receiver. Friends, can you call to mind that feeling of anticipation, the butterflies knowing that you have truly found the perfect gift, and the delight watching the face of the one you love opening it? And can you also call to mind the best gift you have ever been given? The way you felt so known and understood when someone gifted you the very thing you actually always wanted. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, makes me look bad every Christmas. I say this with love and gratitude and acceptance, by the way, in case you can't hear it in my voice. She is a gift giver extraordinaire. Matt and I, for now, are the parents of all of her grandchildren. We've been sharing Christmases and these little and not so little ones for the last 14 years. 
we always have Christmas morning at home and then go to grandmom and grandpa's house for the real shebang, where the mountain of gifts takes hours to get through. She shops for Christmas for months. She already has wish lists from them. She's already on her way. And then well into February, she continues to find wrapped gifts in her home. So every time we go visit, it's always Christmas all over again. Christmas at Guimam's house for months. At home, the gifts, I like to think, are thoughtful, but much fewer. And so overall, underwhelming in comparison. Because honestly, I have a hard time giving my children things that I don't want them to have. She has no scruples when it comes to giving <laughs> gifts. If they want it, they get it. We have tried a policy of what is gifted at grandma's house stays at grandma's house for my own well-being, but it doesn't really work. So we come home with a van full of Nerf guns and battery-operated noisy toys every year. If you opened any closet in my house, you would find on the top shelf something that has been confiscated. She gives the, the children the gifts that they are delighted to receive, and she takes pure joy from the act of giving. Well, happy Giving Sunday, friends. It isn't Christmas, and like I said to the children, we model Giving Sunday more on a season of harvest time and Thanksgiving. When we think of the songs like coming in, rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, and now thank we all our God, and God whose giving knows no ending. We reflect on the abundance we have been given, and we come this morning to bring our presents, gifts, pledges, offerings to God, which is a spiritual practice, and which invites us to ponder what gift would delight the heart of God, and what is the gift that we would be delighted to bring. When it comes to God and money, though, I have to wonder, is filling out a pledge card a gift or a present? Is this something I want God to have? Is it something God wants? Is money even something God needs? The church of our imagination, the church of our ideals, of course, would be above such talk of budgets and bills. We would meet our financial obligations with a song and a prayer, maybe a sprinkle of pixie dust. Could put my wings back on. We don't want to think about the lighting and heating bill for this old home. But friends, we do know exactly what God wants, of course, to return to our reading in which Jesus is quoting Moses and repeating back to his friends, the Shema. These are the words which are wrapped up inside a mezuzah, which Jewish people put on their doorposts. It's often worn as a necklace so that people have these words close to their heart, sometimes put in a prayer box and worn on someone's head. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. There are different ways to translate these words as they are passed along, depending on how people conceptualize what is a human being. But the essence, and how I think it's translated in the message, is love the Lord your God with all you've got, however you picture the totality of yourself, all your heart and your strength and your might, all your mind and your spirit and your soul. Love God with everything. Jesus says to his friends, this is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you were to open your Bible and see just how much of scripture is all the law and the prophets, it's the majority. This is, of course, also the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, coming up in all of the world religions. This commandment had been given from Moses to the people while they were still wandering in the wilderness. Moses never got to reach the promised land. He saw it from a distance and died before ever reaching it and was buried outside it. But he died knowing that he had led the people as far as he could go and they were going to make it, even if he personally would not. Jesus also speaks to a people who are living on the fringes of what Jesus would call the promised land, which he describes as a kingdom, but which biblical scholars usually translate now as a kingdom, a community where we treat one another as beloved kin. We live with that kingdom, that promised land in sight. We have not yet reached it, but we do know what it looks like. We know that God wants our whole hearts. We know God wants our time. God wants, like anyone that we love, to be factored into our hopes and our dreams, our decision-making. But God wants us also to love one another. God wants us to love one another fiercely and protectively. As mother bears love their little cubs, God wants us to love even one another's children. As Glennon Doyle says, there's no such thing as other people's children. God wants us to love everybody that fiercely. No matter who somebody was born to or where they were born. And God wants us to cherish this created planet and treat it with respect, which means that we're also fiercely loving plants and animals and even children who are yet to be born. Yes, God wants your whole heart and whole mind and whole being and for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. God wanted that for the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, and God wants that from us who wander in sight of this promised kingdom as well. God wants us and our love. So no, I don't think God initially planned for a world in which God wanted our money, because God created a world where money initially wasn't needed. Maybe this is me being too much of an idealist now. Perhaps human beings have always been embattled. But I like to imagine that God initially created a world where we are invited to live in perfect peace and share things in common, where the earth sustained each and every person, where neighbors harvested crops together so that those who were weak were supported by those who were strong where any time anyone had cause to feast, they invited the whole village to share in their celebration, where if someone's thatched roof fell in, neighbors would gather to repair it before the rains came, where when the first crops came up, we were so overjoyed with the working order of the natural world that we brought the first fruits singing into the temple to place them before God to show out of a deep sense of joy that we know who it is, who continues to cause the miracle of sustenance. I believe that this is the origin of God's vision and hopefully the end point if human beings can one day learn to live in that kind of realm Jesus describes. So no, I don't think God wanted our money. In a world of perfect shalom, God would have no need of it and nor would anyone else if everyone were provided for. 
But friends, we live like the Israelites in a time of wandering, like Jesus' friends who saw the kingdom described but did not yet reach it. We live in what some call a messy middle. And how messy is this time and place? When we give our money, we show that we acknowledge all of these complexities, that there is work to be done, and that we want to be a part of doing it. We acknowledge that there are unmet needs in our community. There are problems facing people that money can, in fact, solve. It also shows that we believe in the potential and possibility that if we direct our, our means together into one shared vision, that First Church can continue to be what it represents for the community and the generation to come. It can continue to be a beacon of love and acceptance for all people. It can continue to be a sanctuary where people can come in and feel belonging and go out with an understanding of who they are and why they are created to be the way they are with gifts to share in the wider world. I don't think that God has the gift or the present that God longs for when God, who was the source of all love and the center of creation, has become so helpless to provide for each and every one of God's children, and when God cannot soothe the aches and the pains of each and every one of God's children, where some are held hostage and some are hiding from bombs, where some are starving and parched, where there are those across the world who have every material good but lack for purpose and meaning. When friends right here at home who seem to have been given everything numb ourselves with all kinds of distraction because we have forgotten what a gift this life is and how to live it to the fullest. When those who have been given so much become closed off to the joys of a reciprocal relationship in God. I hate to consider this morning the broken parent heart of God watching children suffer. This is why loving your neighbor is loving God with your whole being. Someone in need once explained that what was so hard about being broke was not the things that they wanted. It was not being able to provide for the ones that they loved. They explained that when they paused looking into a shop window, it wasn't a longing for something for themselves that hurt their heart. It was knowing that they couldn't be a generous giver to the ones that they loved. That was the source of their profound suffering. St. Augustine, who also called God the, the giver, the gift itself, and the very act of giving, this is who God is in God's identity, also said that although God is all-powerful, he is unable to give more. Though supremely wise, he knows not how to give more. Though vastly rich, he has not more to give because God has already given it all away in abundance to all of us and asks us to continue to share it. Similarly, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter felt hurt because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I asked my mother-in-law one time how it was that she was such an extraordinary gift giver. And she said, it's so easy. You just imagine what it is like to be a child again. The practice that we enter as faithful people is to enter into the the practice of imagining how it feels to be God, how it feels to be the one source of all gifts, and to want everything to be shared so that all of God's children have what they need, to imaginatively enter who God is. When you received that gift that made you happier than all the rest, what felt so beautiful about it was that you were seen and known. And when we participate, And being a part of God's church, what we are doing is showing God we see who you are. If we are to love you with everything we've got, first we have to understand who it is that God is. Who is this God who loves us so much and invites us to love one another that much? Thanks be to God.